Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, entrepreneurship and leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. I'm here with my friend and business partner, Kimon Fontakidis, and our special guest, Cormac Russell, who I would describe as a thought leader and community or social entrepreneur but i think i don't know Cormac very well although we met on one or two online events so Cormac, why don't you introduce yourself the way you normally would if you met a stranger at a social event or some kind of um conference or something like that well thanks richard great great to be with you uh yeah it's it's funny because normally i find myself being a bit hesitant about uh explaining what I do, I, I find myself in a lot of contexts where people aren't quite sure uh, of what I do. But let me let me say that as I understand what I do, a lot of it is about getting alongside institutions and communities that want to work in a more effective way. So the, you know, a lot of the challenges or the problems that I think I'm trying to address is a problem with the relationship between particularly communities of place and a various institution. So it could be a for-profit, it could be a not-for-profit, it could be a state-based in, uh, institution. Like, for example, we've worked with hospitals in Singapore so that they could think differently about health. We've worked with uh, folks in Wales, so the prison service there particularly interested in our work because they're struggling to figure out how they can release prisoners back into the community in a way that they stay there and they flourish so they're just two examples, but we have lots of words. And I'm often really struck at parties, particularly when I try to explain what I do. Uh, I get blank expressions back at me, particularly with people who just don't have a, you know, a working experience of community. You know, mm. so um, there may be questions that uh, I need to answer better in that regard. Okay, well, no, no, not to worry. And the reason I've come across you is because of a project I'm involved in called Village in the City, which is about community building. And I, as I understand it, you're either associated with or perhaps the inventor of the concept of asset-based community development. Now, um, perhaps before we go into your thoughts on that and explain what that is, could you explain, you know, why you've focused or devoted a lot of your life to the subject of community, why you think it's important, and then perhaps having said because a lot of our listeners haven't haven't really i i'm really interested about about leadership in community contexts or mm. or what you know the role of entrepreneurship in a community context like who are the people who make a community come to come to life or steer it and but i think to give a bit of a wider context most of our listeners perhaps haven't thought about this very much so yeah, imagine you're talking yeah. to intelligent people who haven't thought much about the role of a community up till now yeah, well, I, I think a lot of how we think about anything, including making money, tends to be in line with market economics, which tend to be you find a problem, you develop a service, you make a you know a profit out of doing that, hopefully, and life moves on. So much of the narrative is very much the Frank Sinatra song of I did it my way. Um, and we've seen you know that kind of play out at large in some countries around the world. I think the reason that I'm interested in community is because it offers what I think is an enhanced and much richer story, actually as much from an entrepreneurial perspective as from you know a social justice perspective. So when I think of problems where I think of the neighborhood as the primary unit of change, as a distinct from a particular siloed issue, it opens up all kinds of possibilities that I couldn't see otherwise. And uh, an example might be thinking at the moment, for example, if you're being entrepreneurial about uh, the various poly crisis that we're dealing with, energy was a good one, you know, so energy, which has become quite monopolized, 90% of the energy we consume to, you know, fuel our cars, light our factories, uh, light our homes, is coming from quite distant, uh, non-renewable uh, centralized monopolies. Uh, I think that's a great opportunity to actually uh, think about what would be some local small 
uh, enterprises that create an alternative form of energy. So I think of places like the Isle of Egg off the Scottish coast, where they generate their own energy and they generate enough of that to actually reinvest in local entrepreneurial ideas of young people who they're now getting to come back to the island. So to me, that's a community mindset. The reason that they were able to see those opportunities was because they had a different entrepreneurial lens rather than the narrow lens that says, what's the problem? What's the niche? How do I fix it with a service? I think they're using the island or the community as the unit of change. Uh, mm-hmm. That explains. The, so, so how this is, yeah, yeah, how does it, I guess you're going to, maybe that's what you're about to say. How are you, how do you, so what do you do? Like what role, how do you actually make that happen? So you have obviously communities that have this power actually, that have stuff that they mm-hmm. can do. Mm-hmm. And then you have these needs that can be met. How do you get leader? Yeah. Is it leadership? Is it like, what? Well, maybe I'm not sure exactly what you do and you can talk about that, but then I, sure. I, is, it, is it identifying leaders within the community to, because obviously you need okay. people to run it and to lead it yeah. and to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so first of all, the issue that we're dealing with here is disconnection, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you've got, you've got all the apps with no smartphone. That's the problem. Um, and what I do first and foremost is I identify the problem in a different way to how a lot of people would identify the problem. So the problem isn't how do we reduce the uh, number of people that are coming to uh, ER and how do we reduce the wait time? The problem is how do we get further upstream? So social and political issues which are causing health-related problems are dealt with further upstream. So somebody who might say, hey, we think Cormac Russell could be useful here, may work in a hospital. So we're having conversations with Alberta Health, for example, who want to understand why they're spending 50% of their GDP in the province hospitalizing people. And over the age of 65, particularly among lonely women, uh, quite a lot of people are spending time in hospital, not because they're sick, but because there isn't a community alternative. I'm the guy, I think, that in the first instance comes in and helps people just get a different perspective on the problem. So in a sense, you could say that's kind of standard consultancy as a service. But in terms of then how we might do something about that. So once you say, well, look, upstream, there are a set of opportunities or possibilities to uh, create a new alternative, to create a community alternative. That's fine. But how do you actually then animate those? And that's another piece that I am quite good at. So I'm able to actually say to an institutional leader, instead of reforming your system and trying to stuck salvation from your own thumb, how about you take some resource and actually invest in these neighborhoods? So we say, like, for example, to Milwaukee Police Department, instead of trying to deal with crime and, you know, averse, you know, av- arrest the bad guys why don't you ask the question how come it's the same 15 neighborhoods that are are producing the alumni of the city's prison and what would happen if we took some resource away from enforcement and we pushed it further upstream to employ community builders in these neighborhoods to begin to start reweaving the social fabric that has ripped apart, which is actually the root cause of the women problem in the first place, right? And then begin to discover, connect, and mobilize. You mentioned needs. I would say I'd start with the assets, actually. So what are the assets, competencies, capacities that are lying fallow in these places that are disconnected? And how might we actually begin to do something about that? Start connecting those and mobilizing. And I would tend not to look for leaders as a starting point, because leaders really struggle uh, to get themselves out of the way and actually invite others into conversation. I'd be more interested in finding connectors and conveners, people who are really good at the relationship building piece and the connection piece. I don't want to diss leaders. I think they're important when it comes to growing a followership around getting things done. We need them. But the problem I'm trying to fix is not a leadership problem. It's a connectorship problem. And I think if we can do that, it's much easier for leaders to lead. 
sometimes, though, that's actually about leaders getting out of the way and uh, being better hosts and being, you know, prepared to fail at being a hero. So, uh, you know, in, in, in practice, in neighborhoods, we know that if you go into any neighborhood or village or favela or, you know, I don't want to just narrowly define an urban context, but any small bounded local community, which has its own economy, its multiplicity of cultures, its high street, etc. There are all kinds of possibilities that are currently invisible to most people. So I think a third thing that I do is I offer people a set of glasses at the local level, local businesses, local residents, uh, local associations, to think a little bit differently about what might happen if we kind of take an, eco- an ecological lens rather than just an elemental or siloed approach to things. I think this is really fascinating and um, and inspiring, actually. Uh, I, I think we should all be aspiring to do good. And, 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 and I also do believe in the, you know, quality, quality at source, finding the finding the problem at the beginning rather than tr- always treating the symptoms of the problem can you talk a little bit though let's go back to the Milwaukee 15 neighborhood um mm. uh 15 neighborhood that generates the majority of the, mm. the criminals problem and and the idea of the, the connectors how how so how does it actually work? Like, so like you're in, or you, or I don't know, somebody is, somebody has to identify these connectors and then like, yeah. what, what actually, yeah. what actually happens? Well, it, it, it wouldn't be me. I mean, I, I, I'd yeah. be very cautious about, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm calling in from Dublin, Ireland, uh, parachuting in anywhere. I, I work in 36 countries around the world. Right. So, so the first thing, and it's a big deal, actually, when an institutional person figures out that the challenge here is to think like a social movement and behave like an entrepreneur. Because most of the people who are leaders in our public sectors and in our charities don't, quite frankly. Um, They kind of operate on the basis that we have a core mission. We need to get a client base and we need to provide services. So once you get past all of that to your question, and we're to a point of let's use community building as a potential solution, Our experience is that actually there are quite a lot of people uh, at the neighborhood level who are already behaving like connectors. So there's indigenous competency. They're just invisible. Like we don't look for them because we're looking for leaders. So, you know, the average uh, municipality that would go into one of these neighborhoods or police, they're either talking to people who cause the problem, have the problem, uh, you know, or uh, believe that the institution should fix the problem. (laughs) They're not talking to people who in all kinds of ways are themselves health producer. They're kind of, those people are below their radars. So I'll give you an example, if I may, because I think this could give some context and, and, and make it a little bit concrete for folks. I remember a number of years ago in a neighborhood uh, in Birmingham in the UK, So the neighborhood is Hodge Hill in Birmingham. It's about 20 kilometers outside of the city, uh, heading towards the airport for anybody uh, who knows Birmingham. And it's a population of about 5,000 people. So classically built at a time when, you know, cities were kind of clearing the center and kind of moving out uh, towards the outer, uh, the outer rings of the city. Often these neighborhoods were not properly resourced. So there weren't, you know, transport was poor. So there was very little thought that went into them. It was just, it was housing and they were slapped out there. And over the course of, you know, 30, 40 years, that neighborhood had become a very, very complex, problematic neighborhood in terms of economy. And about seven years ago, uh, in the national newspapers, the neighborhood was described as the seventh most work-shy neighborhood in Britain. And local people living there, including local business people, got really angry, actually, and really uh, annoyed at why the media was reporting on their wounds rather than on their possibilities and, and creating a reputational deficit in that neighborhood, which made life, which was already hard, even harder. But what they started to do, to your question, was they started to say, well, how might we take this as an organizing issue 
rather than, you know, a programmatic issue. And about seven of them start in, in the local context, seven local people said, well, what would happen if we gave this community a good listening to? And we went into all the bumping spaces and the gathering spaces in this neighborhood where people walk their dogs, where, you know, the, the 10 uh parents who stop for a chat after they drop the kids out uh, after school, etc. Really connect with people and find out what people love about this neighborhood, what people like about this neighborhood, what possibilities people see in this neighborhood, what's already happening that's good. But also, who do they know in the neighborhood that is connecting people, that's doing it already? And through that process, those seven people, they did this for about 12 weeks. They were all gregarious people anyway so it wasn't taxing for them they were just basically Sorry, and these people were from the neighborhood these they're local from... residents okay local mm-hmm. residents yeah so there was a church of england minister um two or three of the members of his church i don't want anybody to hear this and think it's only about faith because it's not right. there were two local business people um and there was somebody who was a member of a book reading club and a history society and some local dog walkers all of whom said, let's get together and do this. Thought it was a good idea. So they started a listening campaign rather than let's end food poverty campaign or let's you know go on a march campaign or whatever else we do when it comes to campaigns. They decided to have a listening campaign. They discovered 93 people who fit the characteristics that I'm describing as a connector, who are gift-centered, who are relational, who are quite happy to get people connected and then get out of their way. They don't need to colonize that relationship or own it or get a return for it. It's not transactional. And what they did was they went to those 93 people. And first of all, they just thanked them. Said, look, actually, people are saying really good things about you and and they're appreciative. But also then they invited them to a party and asked them if they would bring four people from their block to that party. So they went from seven people to 500 people and the conversation at that party, they started asking people what else might be possible? What would a preferred future look like? And what assets do they currently have in the community? And then what assets would need to be leveraged externally? So I think my role essentially was to give a little bit of pedagogy, a little bit of scaffolding around how you might do that. So I offered some training, uh, I work with a methodology that Richard's mentioned called asset-based community development. We're in our 30th year, so it's our anniversary this year. Um, and that methodology basically says start close in and start with what's strong, not with what's wrong, and use those strengths to address what's wrong, but also to uh, exploit possibilities, exploit opportunities to be entrepreneurial. Seven years on, from that party of 500 people. And it has been a game changer. So thousands of people who weren't connected and weren't, you know, living their lives in crescendo, to use that term, are really moving into a very, very different space, a very different set of relationships around their economy, around social care, around health and around policing. So it really is about relocating authority back into democratic space at the neighborhood level. And you're providing resources like money, and I mean, are, is there is there being so once you've said so like, what what actually what happened over time is I mean first of all that was done on a voluntary basis if you like so people said right. there's work to be done here and if we don't do it it won't get done so there there isn't a there isn't an agency that sends seven people in to listen to your neighbors right, right? Uh, so they kind of went well that sounds like community work and by the way that, that that's no small point. Because I think if if we were to say to most people listening, from an entrepreneurial perspective, what function do you think neighborhoods perform? I think a lot of your listeners would struggle to answer that question. In fact, I think a lot of people would struggle to answer that question. I know for certain most policymakers would really struggle. So the Minister uh, for you know Enterprise and Economy, I don't even think that's on their radar. Uh, so... Um, I think one of the things that we do in our training is we put neighborhood on the map of policymakers and of of decision makers, as well as local people over time, because I guess there was a kind of a stir, if you like. So this party that I described really opened up a lot of curiosity 
So over time, the big lottery, which is a national uh, lottery, the people buy the lottery uh, the weekends or whatever. They've got a charity, so that redraw it that kind of redirects some of the money back into neighborhoods. So the neighborhood applied to employ a community builder that would work in a dedicated way using asset-based community development to keep the process going. So they kind of moved into a little bit more of a, an intentional organized system because they saw the potential and recognized that if they were going to do this, uh, kind of proliferate this across the neighborhood in a way that would endure, they needed some additional resource. So another thing I do is I train those people. I train community builders. I'm not on my own. There's there's a whole uh, network of people like me around the world, but uh, I'm one of them. And um, in the UK, it's just one place we work, and there are now thousands of those uh, people who are, you know, make a sustainable livelihood out of going in and working in a place-based way to reconnect the residents to their local cultures, their local economies, uh, their local environments, the local possibilities. So it's really becoming, I think, a very, very powerful movement for change um, over the last, particularly the last 10 years. Mm. I'd, I'd like to ask a question more about your, your background and when, how you became aware of this, maybe not problem, but this issue and you know, what sort of state, and obviously, you know, with entrepreneurs, it's like, where did you get the idea from? How did you get it going? In this sure, case, sure. you're, you're, it's not exactly a movement. Perhaps it is a movement. I don't know of community building, but what we, when were you first aware of the problem, which your, your methodology or your framework mm. uh, was a problem? And how did you come to the process of coming up with this methodology like perhaps you can describe some of you maybe your your teen years or later on when did it hit you that this so was I, this, I can, this was i can pinpoint it for you i can pinpoint it for you yeah so i trained in psychology and i i, I guess my focus i thought in my 20s when i was overqualified and uh, fundamentally underexperienced my focus was to work as a psychologist. And that's what I, I thought I, I wanted to do with my life. And that's a very commendable um, profession and way to be in the world. So I, I don't in any way want to uh, criticize it. But what I started, just by happenstance, what I started working in uh, is in the field of residential childcare and was part of a process and a time in the Irish context when we were transitioning for very, very big institutions where kids who were wards of court, in other words, had experienced a rupture uh, with their families and their communities and were being sent into institutions, would have been sent to quite big religious institutions. Um, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the scandals and you know some of the, the great dramatic stories, actually, uh, that have emerged from those times. So I was on the cusp. I came in in the sort of early 90s into transitioning from that way of caring, very much uh, in inverted commas, to what we called community care. So this is where we would transition uh, kids and young adults into neighborhood houses. So they you know, come from very big gray walled buildings, often run by religious institutions. And we were transitioning them into smaller houses in the neighborhood. And it became very, very clear to me very quickly that while we badged that community care, there was neither community nor care in the fundamental sense of what we were doing. But all we were really doing was taking them from a big institution and putting them in a smaller institution because they weren't actually connected with the community. So while they were in the community, they were not of the community. And there was nothing in my training that gave me resource or tool to do anything with that. So I began having seen that, you know, there was a limit to this and what, what the kids were asking for was some kind of a sense of connection, some kind of a sense they'd lost connection with their families, with their own communities of origin often, albeit that there would be tenuous connections there. But they were looking to have a normal life, an everyday life. And part of that is being connected in the community. Many of the communities they were in were actually really frightened and hostile at the idea that an institution bought a house and landed in to their neighborhood. 
So I, because I, began, I, I guess the kids who were landed in were often quite troubled. So I, I can just imagine yeah, how in the yeah. UK context, a, a newspaper like the Daily Mail might, you know, these would be in the same category as exactly. asylum seekers, like negative yeah. social problem Absolutely. kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, at any at any time the outsider comes in, right, the stranger from the edge comes in, d- depending on how much work you've done yourself uh, or how psychologically threatened you feel, uh, you see it as a danger, as the other. Um, and we're seeing that play out not just in the UK, but in a lot of countries, Brazil recently, uh, the US. Uh, so, you know, everybody gets to play uh, this particular othering game. Um, but it was playing out very dominantly. And I think one of the things that really struck me was that the question we were trying to answer, we were answering within a very narrow therapeutic lens. You know, it says that these kids need some kind of therapeutic intervention. So we get psychologists, so we get youth workers, and they work with them. But each of us were trained in our own specialism. So we were working on a one-on-one basis. In other words, the assumption was that the problem was an individual problem. So if we could help this person get through their trauma, all would be well. What we didn't really understand and what I came to understand is is actually it isn't just an individual change that's required. It actually requires some community development. Uh, in order for these kids to have a normal childhood, you need a village. You know, we, we all say, don't we, I think everybody would be familiar with the adage, it takes a village to raise a child. But hardly any of us actually do anything about it. So what I think I was identifying, and I think I was the oddball in the, in the, in the, in the band of people involved in this conversation at that stage, was we don't have a, uh, I suppose, what you might call a youth problem or a child problem or a behavioral problem. We have a village problem. And we probably have two village problems, the, the village they came from and the village that they've landed in. And we need different tools to address that problem. So I started reaching out, first of all, within the within my fraternity. So, you know, you do you ask people like you, first of all, well, what do you think? Am I am I crazy? Does this seem to make sense to you? And well, I was quite fortunate at the time that uh, my boss said, well, why don't you have a look at, you know, promising practice out there? When it comes, I think you're right, but we're not really sure what to do. Why don't you have a look at some examples? And that's where I encountered uh, Professor John McKnight and the work that he was doing in Chicago in neighborhoods. Um, And he was one of the few people, when I scanned the horizon line uh, internationally for good practice, uh, not best practice, by the way, because I think best practice is the enemy of better practice. So, but good practice and promising practice. He was one of the few people who was actually really addressing that question that I had, which is how do I connect these kids with the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the neighbor, so that they can have a normal life and not just connect them with yet another service and yet another program? Because that was one of the things that really struck me. Nearly all of these kids that we were working with were surrounded by salaried strangers. But they had hardly anybody normal in their life who was just there because they loved them. Like if you went into a room with any of these kids, like I could clear, I could clear a room by saying, "Who here loves this child? If you don't leave, please, the child would be left on their own." Now, if that isn't a problem, I don't know what is. You know, we wonder why the hell you know these kids join gangs. I'll tell you why because we did, we're not yeah. asking that question yeah. exactly. So, so many of the really bum counterfeit kind of answers that we have at the moment to loneliness, to health issues, to obesity. Like the answer is community, but we're coming up with counterfeit answers. And like, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So I, I really, I suppose, called out what I thought was a counterfeit response to what was really the core issue. Uh, John McKnight uh, seemed to me to be a frontier person. So he, to my mind, was a real entrepreneur because, for my money at least, he, and I think this is a key entrepreneurial behavior, by the way, I think an entrepreneur challenges received wisdom. They Mm -hmm. say society has uh, a kind of a general assumption that the problem can be fixed this way. Well, actually, I'm challenging that assumption, and here's the alternative. So I think what John said was, most people assume 
the reason that we have urban blight or even rural blight, why we have the fentanyl problem, why, you know, we have all of these issues in society uh, and loneliness, by the way, which goes right across the socioeconomic spectrum and will become one of the most predominant issues of our time. The reason we have that uh, is not because of what generally is assumed, which is a failure of institutions. You know, the school fails, the hospital fails, the police fail, the social workers fail. It's not an institutional failure, but it's a community challenge. And I think he was one of the first people I heard say that. And that totally resonated for me as a kid who grew up in the west of Ireland. And I I can relate to that. He's right. Just at a visceral level, I knew he was right. And I also knew it at a professional level because I had hit the limits of what I could do with my training. Um, And the only thing that I think I did, which was commendable at that stage, was I listened (laughs) and I learned, you know. And perhaps a second star on my uh, copybook was that I guess I was humbled in a sense. I was willing to accept that all progress, I think the great entrepreneurs are the people who understand the limits of their system and try another way. So um, I became really, really curious about John and what he was doing and uh, and essentially apprenticed myself to him mm-hmm. uh, nearly 30 years ago. And um, that kind of brings us up to the current thing, like our journeys, 30-year friendship. We've just co-authored a book called The Connected Community, which tells the stories of our journey across 36 countries and other people. But more importantly, it tells the stories of the communities themselves. And really, we're trying to use, you know, our our privilege, our white middle-class gendered privilege to say, hey, let's feature something that we think is largely invisible, which is these communities are doing really interesting and entrepreneurial and quite transformative stuff, but largely it's not featuring, it's not actually on our radars. So this book is about putting it on our radars. That's very interesting. Well, thank you. And so what did, apart from sort of getting together with John McKnight, and obviously perhaps after this uh, after this is over, I'll ask you to send a few links so we can put all this in the show sure. notes so, so people can follow up if they're interested. But what did you do personally? Because, I mean, you, you said you became his disciple or got together with him. But what was your – and I think so, although, so, you, although yeah. you haven't described yourself as an entrepreneur, you were sort of identifying a problem which most people hadn't even weren't even capable of verbalizing. So you'd seen from your own experience, seen the problem. And yeah. then what, what did you what did you do or together with him or by yourself? Well, how did you yeah. – what was your next step? So the next step for me was in 1996. This is the entrepreneurial piece. I, I, I think uh, the next step for me was to say, I don't think that I can flourish within, uh, you know, I, can, I don't think I can practice this way of being in the world, this way of being helpful within the context of the health system. And so I, I think the next step was to say, I'm choosing not to try to reform the system, I'm leaving. Um, And rather than just taking my ball and leaving the playground, I decided to leave with a view to creating uh, a more, a a warmer space within which I could just grow that practice and learn. I was curious. I wanted to kind of, you know, create a set of possibilities that really gave me a chance to play with some of this stuff. So I set up a social enterprise called Nurture Development uh, in 1996. So the tag line that I gave that uh, social enterprise was uh, development redefined. So I wanted to think about a completely different way of thinking about development, which was development from inside out rather than top down and outside in. And um, I suppose, as you do when you set up a social enterprise, you know, you, you start to build networks and build alliances and build opportunities and possibilities. Uh, and so I grew the business uh, over time to be where it is today. And as a social enterprise today, we're present in, we have a footprint in 36 countries and provable evidential impact. I don't want to overclaim this, by the way, because it's people on the ground who are doing the work, not us. But uh, we've we've had some consequential 
um, contributions in that regard. So I, I, I would say, while John was hugely important, um, I and my team have grown that space and 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 grown the reputation around that work, and really taken an awful lot of what's broader than ABCD. So you know, more strength based lenses and tools you know, for working with prisons and hospitals and things of that nature so that we can now go in at every level of the system from leadership to uh, practice-based people and give them some resources that will actually enable them to work this way. Mm. Well, thank you for that. So you you definitely meet our definition of an entrepreneur because you took action, you didn't just think about And there are a lot of, I I thought of you as more as a kind of academic Thought, thought leader, and that's just my ignorance. Perhaps I hadn't researched your resume well enough. <laughs> so apologies for that. Can I, but... can I say something on that, Richard, because I, I think it may be useful. So, so one of the things, and I do think it's not, there, there may be a reason for that. And the reason is, is quite early on, um, I came to realize that actually we were, what was coming into our wheelhouse was really important information that I couldn't hold on to myself uh, in order to, you know, make a living of it, that I felt it was so important and I felt so passionately about it. I could, I just had to share it into the commons. But I also recognized that it is like a movement like this, like the joke you may have heard this one before, but the joke we'd often tell ourselves in the early days when there was just a few of us trying to, you know, open up the space for an asset-based community development way of working is we'd say, there's definitely a gap in the market, but there isn't a market in the gap. And so we have to grow the market because people don't know they need us. People don't really know they need this way of working. They think they've got it sorted. It's just if they try harder and run faster, and do more, it will eventually sort itself out. Um, so... I think a big part of what we did, particularly I did, was the blogging, the writing, what you guys are doing, the podcasting. They're really saying, look, actually, a big part of what we have to do is we have to raise consciousness around this way of understanding things and let those positive disruptors out there who want somebody like us to get alongside them and give put some rocket fuel in their engine, know we're here, but also give them, even for free, I mean, particularly for free, actually, give them uh, all kinds of entry points, including no cost at all, to say, we're part of a social movement here. And yeah, we have to make a sustainable livelihood, but this is bigger than us, and it will go beyond us. Um, So I think that's where the thought leadership piece probably came. So there was an element of recognizing uh, that, To do this work well, you've got to act like a social movement and a member of a social movement and be really generous while also behaving like an entrepreneur. And actually, it's the bite between those two things that gives real impact. Mm. So I do a lot of writing and, you know. I'm trying to understand, um, as I said, this is really fascinating and and I totally agree. It all makes a lot of sense, as you said, from a gut perspective it makes a lot of sense but so you have all these institutions and and i'm sure even today you'd probably say that there's still plenty of top down uh outside in and but they're getting money right i mean they're 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 getting they're getting financed by the government they're getting financed by donations they're getting financed somehow and then they're deploying this money in the way that you're this non-optimal way that you're sort of Mm -hmm. describing and so what i'm trying to understand is so with your with the let's say the inside out movement or the opposite way of doing it, the community based movement. How do you? Because I think that's what's interesting. So, like, like for me and for everybody who pays taxes and put and donates money into stuff is how do you actually get the money to the people and what do they do with it? Like differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Than, yeah well, but that, than, that's than, exactly than, the than, because that, because and then I'm just that's trying to exactly the right question. Those, yeah, examples that you gave about. Yeah. Um, the neighborhood connectors or whatever, they hired the community person then who's going to come in. And just to what extent is that person getting money, like trying to do drum up financing and then how are they deploying them? How does it all work? I mean, like from that perspective. So so one of the things that taxpayers really need to understand that this is why the left right narrative is so bankrupt and so just uh, mind numbingly stupefying um, is because it just totally misses the mark. 
you know, and misses a whole set of opportunities. So you take your average prison anywhere, Australia, the UK, whatever. And, and basically the whole setup of the system is bonkers because it basically says our, our police officers, our retailers for the prison industry, which is privatizing, is going to turn poverty into money by not, it has to be said, it's not the prison guards that are making the money. They often get paid less than people in McDonald's are getting paid. It's the private sector folks who run the prison. So if you look at, uh, uh, what was it, um, that uh, series a few years ago, um, Orange is the New Black, you know, just kind of, it talks a little bit about that. So so basically, I think the unsuspecting public say, well, I pay my tax dollars and the bad guys get arrested and they go to prison. I mean, it's so, so inch deep in terms of analysis. And we're saying is this, look, actually, if you think about it, and this did happen in the 1970s in Massachusetts, you could be so much more radical and actually save so much more uh, in your tax dollars if you actually got past thinking about the problem as being solved by services. So in um, the 1970s, there was an experiment in the U.S. in Massachusetts called the Massachusetts Experiment, where a guy by the name of Jerry Miller shut down 11 reformatories and got about 1,000 to 1,044 kids out of prison and into community. And he, like his great insight um, was to say that if I take the amount of money, tax dollars, that I currently spend or waste on each uh, of these kids, incarcerating them, for that amount of money, face down, I could send them to Harvard, give them a very, very generous uh, stipend per week, uh, give them a place to live and pay for a cleaner. And still exactly. have change left over, right? So how anybody left, right, or in between thinks that it's really, really a good idea to take somebody and incarcerate them and spend that kind of money. And they can't come up with something else. It's kind of bonkers. So Jerry's great insight was to say, as the warden of wardens of these 11 prisons, I have convening power. So if I turn around and I say to communities, you know, like the, the faith communities, the, you know, the not-for-profits, the, the people in communities that you can get the attention of, right? Hey, folks, I'd like you. I'm going to come along on Thursday night. And I'll meet you in the Presbyterian Church because it's a good place and it's warm and they, they've agreed I can rent the room. And I'd like anybody who's interested in having a conversation with me as a warden of 11 prisons that is kind of currently babysitting you know, thousands of your kids to have a conversation with me around what a community alternative to incarceration would look like. Because I know many of you are angry with the way things are and you talk about prison reform, but I'm here to tell you that we can reform our prisons up the gazoo. We can make them the best, the nicest, the safest prisons in the world. That's not the solution. Because five minutes after I release these kids from the wonderful prison, it's like a revolving door. They're back in again. The problem is further upstream. So I want to have a conversation with you about what's the community alternative to incarceration and how could I channel some of the money that I'm currently, and remember at the end of the day, what's a prison doing with money? It's procuring services. It doesn't have to be this way. It's a lack of entrepreneurship that says it's fixed. It's not fixed. The entrepreneur says it's not fixed. It's flexible. Let's try another way. He was an entrepreneur. He tried another way. So what he said, I think, was, I'm sick of trying to reform my system. He was a bit quasi-academic like myself. He was smart enough when he went in to try to do the reform of these 11, 11 reformatories. And he was called in because the kids were being abused, right? So there was a hue and a cry and a scandal. But he just carried out a baseline. He said, you know, Let's let's look at kind of what success looks like. And for him, it seemed obvious. Success is that if it's a prison, it reforms behavior. Therefore, these kids go out and they actually get on with life. And what he was finding was no matter how much reform he did, somehow, for some reason, these kids were just on a pipeline right back in again. So what he said was the issue is not reforming the prison service. The issue is how do we get a community alternative to incarceration that actually enables these kids to share their skills and their talents and their abilities so they can actually get on with contributing to community. 
he successfully, and still to this day in Massachusetts, you can draw a straight line between that Massachusetts experiment. And that, that happened. He's not unusual. He didn't drop from Mars, right? What was unusual were his practices, was his entrepreneurial bent. So here you have a bureaucrat, dare I say, if that sounds like a labeling term, I apologize to any of our listeners, but he was a bureaucrat, but he acted like an entrepreneur. Mm. So here you have somebody who's almost laundering money out of a system that has a very, very narrow view of what change needs to look like. And they're going further upstream and they're saying to the communities, hey, entrepreneurs, anybody with a bit of metal in their belly, stand up. You tell us what the alternative is. And if you want to do it, we'll resource you to do it. So we're not just gaslighting you and saying, come up with an alternative and we'll leave you. So what, what actually can. happened? What did some of these, what were some of the ideas that people did? Oh, so there's some really wacky stuff. So, um, I, I mean, in a, in, a, in a fun, the most outrageous example, and he writes about this in his book, Last One Over the Wall, as in Last One Over the Wall, switch out the lights uh, of the prisons. But uh, the most wacky was uh, in this uh, era in the 70s, Pan Am Airlines were the first international airline to offer an around-the-world ticket. So you could buy a ticket for $3,000 and you could travel all around the world, 77 stops and spend a year. So one of the things he funded, because he's saying, I have money, I will procure community alternatives, were a number of college students who said, hey, we've got an idea. We'd like to use our gap year to spend a year traveling the world with one of these uh, prisoners. So you will release them into our care and together we'll travel around the world. Uh, give us $3,000, give them $3,000 and give us $5,000 spending money and we'll send you a postcard from Seville. <laughs> of course, this was in the age when there was no, um, you know, email. <laughs> sure. This day, there are bureaucrats listening, going, "This is bonkers. This would never." I think the idea is but brilliant. It was, it was Personally, I think the so idea did, is so brilliant. Do I, so do I. And here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. So this guy, quite rightly, is saying, "Hey, this is chip money." I mean, like by comparison with what I spend to incarcerate people. Um, you know, obviously I'm going to filter out, so I'm going to try and set myself up for success here and release some kids who, you know, yeah, right. the, uh, best, who whatever, be the best, the best, yeah. life, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, look, what happens, what happens is this, uh, the, the kid's life has changed forever. The other the student's life has changed forever. Their families get to know each other. Uh, they go and they, they, they learn things, uh, you know, they come back to the United States enlightened. Uh, they, yes. they, they know where different parts of the world are, you know, and so on and so forth. And in all kinds of ways, the trajectory uh, of these kids has changed irrevocably forever and they're mm -hmm. forgotten to the system right mm -hmm. um their record is expunged and many of them now are off living their life being entrepreneurs doing whatever right. probably helping other kids right mm -hmm. um because they know how close they came and what a lucky escape they had um so in a sense you know this thing of community it doesn't just happen it often needs people to precipitate and, and that's what Jerry was doing. He was acting as a kind of a, like like almost that food that gets into the oyster that kind of creates the pearl, right? An irritant. It's like, come on, are you saying we're the best alternative? Well, will you step up? What would you do? And then he, he was resourcing them. Some of the other stuff was just like, you know, saying this guy, he, he's really good at fixing bikes. And what we'll do is we will create space in you know the basement of our local community center for this kid to set up uh, we'll get a few local people to mentor him who you know know a little bit about how to run a business and we'll support this kid to create a valued social role so we will literally perform social alchemy so this kid who has a reputation is now the kid who repairs secondhand bikes in the neighborhood to as good as new and brings real value to low-income families who can't afford to buy a new bike you know so it, they're just some examples so so, so come out, i'm conscious of time and you know it's i'm sure many of our listeners will be really struck by the just the, the, these examples because these are ideas that they might not have heard elsewhere and uh, i got interested I, in community projects and when running my tedx i had various community builders including people you've heard of particularly our common friend mark McCurgo, 
on the stage talking about their different community projects. But I found it very difficult to find um, how to find these community connectors. You talked about people going into uh, a community and identifying them. And um, could you share what, you know, and are there magazines they read or things? How, how do you identify the community connectors? Question number one. And secondly, mm. is where would you go if you wanted to say, I, you know, Comax sparked my interest in this whole area, but I want to find out more. Where where could someone find, like, the encyclopedia of great yeah. community ideas? Obviously not on the assumption that, you know, you can insert one idea from Massachusetts sure. in, into Belgium yeah. and it's going to work. But just where, where can people go if they want to identify yeah. the people and identify the ideas? Yeah. So, so the first question first, the how do you discover connectors? I think one of the things that's really important to be aware of, and I, you know, talk a lot about this in the new book, which is the answer to the second question to an extent. Um, one of the things that's really striking to me is that connectors are born, not made or or, or or trained. So they're there already. So your question is an excellent question, Richard, because it is about discovering them mm-hmm. rather than training people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, the way you frame the question is excellent. And that's that's really important because otherwise we could end up going uh, down a rabbit hole. Uh, so they're there. So then the question is, how do we find them? Well, the first thing, and we talk a lot about this in the book, the first thing is, is to recognize the connectors by nature are relational, right? So that means that they are likely to be in relationship, to be in association. So one of the first things I would say is go to the bumping places and the gathering spaces in the neighborhood and pay attention to who the hosts are, who's convening, right? And then watch for their behavior. What's their motivation in convening? Are they convening to get a followership? Or are they convening because they really enjoy the idea of actually supporting people to be in connection and in exchange with each other? If it's the second, you've found a connector. The second thing to do is to recognize it takes one to find one. So once you've found one, you would say to them, hey, I really appreciate the way you did this, 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 because they may not be consciously aware of the virtuous nature of their behavior. And then I would say, do you know anybody else like you? Mm. That's kind of really good at gathering people up or whatever. The third thing, and this is current, one of my shorthand tricks uh, is I would say, hey, you know, back in 2020 and 2021, when we had lockdown, can you remember who the people in the neighborhood were who were holding this community together and connecting, whether it was on land or online? Who were they? And could you introduce me to them? And I would use a snowball methodology. I'd go and I'd have conversations. It takes all but five minutes to kind of find out what somebody is kind of gift oriented, uh, you know, and strengths based, whether they're glass half full or glass half empty. So uh, I'm very, very interested in finding the folks. This is the fourth and final thing I'd say who've got convening power. So it's very interesting. You find this in organizations too. You know, it's not the shop steward that can necessarily get everybody out. It's often if you look at, you know, what's happening in the organization, you really want to pay attention to who is not so much the leader, but who's the person that people will follow, you know, but in a sense of in a trustful way. Um, And so the fourth piece is, can they actually, do they know, for example, 10 other people? But if they were to say to them, hey, I really think we should go to this party. Or, hey, I really think we should think about this or have this conversation. That those people would come. You know, one of the things, Richard, that's very striking to me about uh, connectors is you'd never find any self-respecting connector uh, handing out leaflets or doing flyer drops in the neighborhood. For them, it's all in person. It's all word of mouth. And that ripple effect They have built a lot of confidence around. Interestingly, though, this is almost universal. When I, you know, express some gratitude or appreciation uh, to a a connector, I said, gee, it's amazing how you connected those kids who were getting in trouble with Mrs. Miggins and helped her kind of get her garden back in, in check again. That was really amazing. Nearly all of them will say that that's just what you do. That's just being neighborly. So most of them do not have any self-awareness. It's not like I'm an entrepreneur or I'm a leader. Yes, because society doesn't value the connector. 
So one of the reasons they're really hard to find is because like I do this exercise in training, I'd say, okay, you know, 20 people, give me an example from popular culture of a connector. I've given you a definition. You know, is there a movie you've seen? Is there a character? And they really, really struggle because there's no Hollywood version of the connector, really. Um, so in that sense, I think it is hard. I, I recognize that. And you do need. So to your second question, that's why we wrote this most recent book, John McKnight and I. We wanted to give the connectors and people who are working as paid community workers a compass. You can't give them a map, as you said, but we wanted to give them a compass, a set of principles that they could work to. And so we've kind of, this is, I think, our most clear ex explication of how to do this work in really granular, practical ways that anybody could pick up. And it's written for doers. It's written for people who just say, I want to get on and do something here. Um, it takes them through a really simple process, discover, connect, and mobilize. That's the three sections of the book. And we take people through, first of all, how to discover the strengths, the functions, the assets, the connectors in the neighborhood, then how to connect them, and then how to mobilize to greater action and possibility. Mm, fantastic. Well, I we're coming up to the end of our allotted time. And I think for many of our listeners, this is a, a very different way of looking at uh, 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 reality and society and extremely interesting and valuable. And certainly in our understanding of entrepreneurship, whether they're connectors, they're simply people who are changing the world, seeing problems and doing things, whether they're conscious of it or not. So, yeah, and certainly lead, there's more than one leadership style, as as we all know, and so in some ways there's a, a perfect match, even for not all leadership styles. So just before we wrap, are there any, any things that you we haven't had time to cover that you think are important for our audience here, like any closing thoughts that authors yeah, we didn't, didn't just, ask you just to a conclusion. Yeah. Just really quickly, I mean, this is our 30th anniversary, but the, it's also the anniversary of another very significant movement, which uh, was started by a guy called E.F. Schumacher. It's the 50th anniversary of a book that some of your listeners will know of, published in 1973, called Small is beautiful. And I just want to say that uh, another, it's, Im, it's implicit in what we've been talking about, but just the virtue of small things, the virtue of local things, and that it's okay to start close in and to start small and start local. And my favorite example of this is a UK entrepreneur, Bayless, uh, who invented the wind-up radio in 1991, listening to a BBC program uh, about the issue of um, AIDS and uh, HIV and malaria and other such issues uh, in Africa. And what he recognized was that the issue is that people don't have plug-in radios, right? So getting information about sexual health and opportunities just wasn't available to them. So he did something which is kind of counterintuitive. He invented something that seemed quite retro, and quite basic, which was the wind-up radio, but it perfectly fit the local context. And E.F. Schumacher, The Smallest Beautiful Theory, is all about appropriate technology. What's right for this place and this place alone? And I think we're moving into a time, given all of the various challenges, where giantism and big solutions and going to scale and taking over the world and globalization are probably pretty bankrupt. And I think it is a time when opportunities are going to be hyper-local. So I'm very excited about those opportunities. In a world full of crisis, there's a lot of opportunity to go more local and to try to take those small solutions forward. So I perhaps suggest I'm finishing that way. Fantastic. I want just final. I, you, I find this to be very um, motivating. And uh, I think a lot of people who are listening probably feel the same way. And so, but what is a guy like me, I want to give money or time. What can we do? Like, what can the listener do actually? You know, a lot of these are frameworks and like for the people <laughs> are frameworks for organizations. And yeah. they, they, how, how can you make it? How can, how can the single individual make yeah. a difference here? Well, because we uh, talked about it, just donating the money to the wrong top-down organizations. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, well, what do we do with our money? It's a, great, our time? it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that's, that I'm 
not peddling the book or anything, but it just really it struck me. I just come off a call with Greenwood uh, Coalition, which is a coalition of community people uh, out in Port Hope in, um, uh, in Ontario. And they, uh, their local residents have each bought a copy of the book, are actually forming a reader, uh, a reader circle, you know, so a book club. But they're actually systematically over the next four months going to implement all of the ideas in the book until they organize their entire community. That includes local businesses. Um, and, and you know, so that's one piece. Another is, uh, you know, uh, this is at scale, but like if I look at what's happening with New Bra- uh, Nebraska and the Nebraska Community Foundation, there's an example, I think, that's a beautiful example of where communities are asking the question you asked. So we have small towns that are struggling, that their biggest export is their young people. And what they're beginning to realize is we got to put our money into our town, not just our kids, because we're we're capitalizing our kids to go to college out of state, to buy homes out of state and set businesses up out of state. Well, you've, if you've got three kids, you've got a fourth one now. It's called your town. And if you don't put your dollars into that, then it's going to die <laughs> right. because the kids are gone and you're gone and that's that. So what they're doing is, is they're creating local enterprises, local employment schemes. Uh, we can do things as well with like, for example, having EV fleets of cars in our local neighborhoods. So instead of everybody having their own car as a household, why not say, hey, actually, let's pool our money in a different way. The biggest, fastest growing uh, social movement in Australia is the Bendigo Bank Community Bank Movement. This is where communities are creating their own community banks, taking tax dollars that were going out of state into faceless multinationals and bringing it back home. So these are things that we could do to make our money circulate more around our economy. Awesome. But hey, you could also just say hello to a neighbor that you tend to avoid. Yep. Yeah, did start with your. I think the answer is start with your own. Start with your. Start with your own yeah. neighborhood. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it's, it. It's, it's been, been a really, pleasure. Really, it's been really interesting. Uh, well, thanks thank so you much for hosting for the time. Indeed, it's a pleasure.